You remember the parable of Jesus about the farmer who sowed seed in a field. Some of that seed landed on good soil and it produced the intended harvest. But some of the seed was devoured by birds or fell in places where there was insufficient soil. And so the seedling could not grow, it could not last. There was other seed that fell among the thorns which grew up to choke out the seedlings. Jesus was illustrating, of course, the different responses of heart that come to those who hear the message of good news about God's kingdom, about His saving grace in Jesus Christ. Some hear it, and they trust it, and they live. Others hear it, and they respond favorably, but then reject the message of the salvation from God's judgment that Jesus provides as a gift of His grace. For some who turn away from the message, Jesus explains this, and I quote, "...the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the Word and it proves unfruitful." That's a tragedy. What a tragedy. The life-giving, sin-removing, eternity-securing, sinner-reconciling message of salvation is squelched by the worries of this world. By the allure of wealth. There are indeed many anxieties to be born in this complicated and troublesome world. Living, we know, and we learn fairly quickly in life, living is no easy thing. We must secure food and drink, clothing and shelter. We need to figure out education options and find and then retain employment. And losing it, we're on our way to find it again and to keep it this time. We have to bank our money and pay bills and maintain and repair and replace our possessions. And all of this unfolds in a world that is obsessed with securing as many resources and material benefits as possible with anxious ambition to get, to have, to possess, to succeed. Into this intense, sometimes desperate, and often chaotic world, Jesus speaks this word of wise and gracious counsel to us. He says, Do not be anxious. As we come to Matthew chapter 6 today and finish out this chapter in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says this, in fact, three times. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25, do not be anxious. He uses the word again, but again the command a second time in verse 31, therefore do not be anxious. And again in verse 34, do not be anxious. He wants us to see this, doesn't he? And I wonder in light of this command, what anxieties are wearing you down, pilgrim? 
What anxieties are wearing you down? It's a more complicated world this day. Is it housing? Employment, education, marriage, children, health, status, securing elusive pleasures and privileges. Some of the things it seems that everyone else has and you don't. What anxieties wear you down, pilgrim? Jesus says to us so graciously, do not be anxious about your life. Now in this context, for many of Jesus' followers, securing food and drink that was sufficient for the day, as well as securing sufficient clothing, was a source of genuine anxiety. It's a world that we don't, most of us really understand. They would have scoffed at the things that stir our anxieties. And what they saw as gnawing anxieties that were there day after day after day would strike us as matters of unbounded desperation. So there's much for us to gain as those who worry just as much about things not nearly as significant. Much to gain as we learn as our Savior speaks to people, imagine it, some of whom did not know if they would eat the next day. How long that clothing would hold together and whether it could be used to keep them warm in the winter months. These are the things they were concerned about. And Jesus says to those people, beginning at verse 25, do not be anxious in seeking material goods. This is a theme that he drives through most of this section. Do not be anxious in seeking material goods. The prohibition we find right away there in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. The therefore is so crucial here in this context. Remembering what we discussed last week and looking at that context before that precedes the statement therefore a believer who possesses an eternal perspective and whose master is jesus not money will find no good reason to be anxious about material possessions the master he serves is no marble statue he's seated on the throne of the universe He reigns with sovereign authority. He is working for and in and with His people for the glory of His great name. He is a master who can be trusted. He can be trusted to address every need that His servants will ever face. God never promises that every situation into which He brings us is going to be trouble-free, safe, and prosperous. But to fret anxiously about securing material needs while living under the shelter of Christ's reign is insanity. When Jesus is your master, you are liberated from any need for the anxieties of life to control you. You're free. Jesus now defends 
this prohibition. Do not be anxious about your life. The defense is fairly lengthy in this context. He argues, first of all, from the greater to the lesser in verse 25. Don't be anxious about your life. Notice the end of verse 25. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus makes this point with a rhetorical question demanding a positive response. Is not life more significant than clothing? God gives us life. He fits us with bodies. Stop. Think about that again. He gives us life and He fits us with bodies. Do you think He's not going to provide the fuel to keep them going? Do we think He's not going to supply the food and the drink to sustain life and limb when He's given us our bodies? Let's imagine it this way. You have a wealthy corporate executive and he builds a house for his 89-year-old mother on his estate. She lives in another state, but... The grandchildren go and help her move out of her old home and she's traveling back with them on the road with a small trailer that holds her few things in this world, coming to this estate that's been built for her, this home on her son's estate. He sent her pictures and she's looked at it. It's a beautiful place. Everything that she's going to need for these last years of her life. And the whole way on the road, as the grandchildren are driving her to this place, she's constantly saying, how am I going to heat it? How am I going to heat it? I don't know if I have enough money to heat this place. What do the grandchildren say? Grandma, Dad built you the whole house. He's going to make sure it gets heated. Would you just relax, Grandma? It's okay. Oh, multiply that over and over again. God gave you your body. He has given you life. Do you think He'll not feed you and clothe you? If this He has done, the greater, the lesser He will certainly attend to. Now God does subject some of His people to great trials Trials indeed in which they do lack food. Trials in which they lack clothing. He is sovereign in those situations as well. He is to be trusted. He loves us. There is no place for anxiety even in the prison cell of the martyr. But pervasively speaking, it's a simple equation. God gave you a body. He'll supply the fuel. Anxiety is reductionistic, is what Jesus is saying in a sense. As if your body is about nothing more than the clothes that you're wearing. As if your body is about nothing more than the food that you put in it. I gave you that body. Do not be anxious. Jesus moves to the second argument in defense of this prohibition of worry. Arguing now from the lesser to the greater. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Here's the lesser, see the greater. Draw the right conclusion. Birds do not sit 
in their nests with their beaks open, waiting for God to drop a chocolate-covered worm down their throats. That's not his point. They fly about, they peck, they scratch, and indeed they stockpile food. But there's no anxiety. You ever seen a worried bird? They work. They don't worry. They're busy. They're not bothered. If God feeds the birds, really? Really? He's going to forget about you? Now this argument requires a certain worldview. It requires an understanding about the providence of God. That God is distinct from His creation. That He is not one with it, but He is its Creator. And that as the Sovereign Lord and Giver of life, He reigns supremely over every event in this world. Now, He does not intervene miraculously often, but through the normal world that He has created, He is ever supplying for His creatures. We can say, if we see the world rightly, God feeds the birds. You think He's not going to feed you? Says Jesus, verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? As a simple side point here of logic to support, again, his defense, anxiety may shorten your length of life. It may destroy the quality of it, but it's not going to take you one inch further down life's road. Worry is a means to no end. It's a worthless waste of time and effort, always. You, Christian, are not an exception. It's a waste of time and effort. How foolish it would be to think, I can live five minutes longer. I can live another week if I will worry hard enough. No, says Jesus, this is ridiculous. You cannot do anything with anxiety. Well, you may eat a hole in your stomach, but that's it. It's worthless. The second lesser to greater argument begins at verse 28. So the third argument, the second lesser to greater, verse 28, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Go ahead, Jesus says. Really, I want you. Look. Go look out there on the field. Look at these wild flowers that grow everywhere. I don't think lilies here is it's translated different ways. I think it's just talking about the wild flowers that grew in the fields not one particular kind of flower, but look at these flowers that spring up. I really want you to take a look at them. What do you see? You look at the birds of the air and you learn something from them. They are our teachers. 
You look at the wildflowers and you learn something from them. They are instructing you. They are preaching a message to you. Take a close, careful look at these flowers. They're beautiful. They also work. They work like the birds do. They draw nutrients from the soil. They convey water and nutrients from the roots all the way up to the flower. They take in the sunlight and process it and turn it into beauty and growth. So they're working, but they do not toil or spin. Spin doesn't mean spin in circles, but it means make their own clothing. We don't spin anything. There's a few people here that might, but I doubt that you're making your own cloth to make your own clothes. For them, that was everybody did that. Make your own cloth to make your own clothes. They don't do that. But they have more majesty in their beauty than Solomon could ever purchase with all the money in the world. Here again, then, is the lesser to greater logic of the argument. Verse 30, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Small earthen ovens were used to bake bread on a daily basis, and sometimes they would throw the grass of the field, dry it out, and put it in these ovens to make their bread got this beauty and that's what we do with it we just burn it for bread if god so adorns the wild flowers of the field do you think he'll not cover you with his grace oh you of little faith little faith i mean that's a rebuke certainly Anxiety reveals a lack of trust in God, and we need to make that connection. What we do is we worry and we make the connection to the circumstances. How bad this is. How troublesome this is. I can't believe these people did this. I can't believe this happened here. And we worry about these things, but we look at the circumstances. Jesus is saying, look at your faith. That's the real issue. Oh, you of little faith, I take care of the lilies of the field. I'm not going to take care of you. There's something of a summary and conclusion here then in verses 31 and 32. The summary, verse 31, Therefore, tying this up, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? That's his prohibition again restated. That's obvious to us by this point. In verse 32, then Jesus drives that point home with this conclusion. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Two ideas here. First of all, the Gentiles seek after all of these things. Notice the interchangeable relationship between two concepts here. Look carefully at that verse, verse 32. Do you see the, uh, the word seek? The Gentiles seek after these things indicates that in all that Jesus has said to this point, their seeking is to be equated with their worry, with their anxiety. 
So Jesus' argument is primarily about the kind of worry that is largely ambitious. It certainly includes much more than that, but it, it, we, we cannot miss that. It is an aggressive attempt to secure material wealth. It is an anxiety and ambition to get more and more and more. The Gentiles are anxiously, ambitiously seeking more clothing, more food, more drink, more security. That's what they do. I deliver my followers from that world. We can connect it to verse 24. There are two masters. There is the master Christ and there is the master mammon or money, possessions. If we've been freed from the master of possessions, then there's no point to serve that master with anxious ambition. This is what the Gentiles do, first of all. And secondly, you're really disrespecting your father. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. It's not like He's clueless about your needs. Your Father knows you need these things. Anxiety about housing and education and work and opportunity and privilege and pleasure and whatever worries that are not nearly as essential as food and clothing. All of it is a life orientation of those who do not know God, and all of it is an affront to a God who knows everything. It is a reminder that receiving Jesus as our Lord and Savior changes everything. We simply cannot look at this world the same way again. The risen Christ provides to us all that we need His kingdom is coming. His will is to be done on earth. That changes the way that I look at every tough situation I enter. Don't be anxious about anything. The intoxicating allure of wealth and pleasure and status lose their magnetism when we find our soul's master and source of eternal satisfaction in Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, if we're not to seek anxiously after material goods, what are we to do? The brevity of verse 33, as we come to it, belies its importance in Jesus' argument. In other words, he spends almost all of his time in this section on don't be anxious about material things. But verse 33 is really the heart of it all. Though it's said very succinctly, it's at the core of what he's driving at. And we could say it this way. Be diligent in seeking God's kingdom and righteousness. Be diligent in seeking God's kingdom and righteousness. Verse 33. This is not what we're to do. What are we to do? Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The but there is contrast. Rather than living as the Gentiles do, rather than disrespecting your father as if he's provided you a body and is not going to take care of it, rather than that, seek first His kingdom. How do you read the word first? 
First, seek God's kingdom, and then after that, go after wealth with all your might. No. Seek first His kingdom, first in the sense of priority. Seek His kingdom and His righteousness above everything else. Seek it. Did you notice there the connection to verse 32? This is what the Gentiles seek. You, in contrast, are to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. In contrast with those who are lost and without Christ's salvation, we are to seek after these two ideas, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That is a radically different life orientation is to distinguish our lives. The risen Christ, I think, is right to say in light of this, don't do that, do this. The risen Christ has no time for churches that are little more than chapels for the American way of life. He disapproves of cultural Christians who attend church on Sunday and immediately return to their anxious pursuit of wealth and pleasure and privilege the rest of the week until it's interrupted by an hour or two at church when they then return right back to the treadmill of materialistic ambition. That is a disordered life in Christ's view. Seek as priority. Seek in all things first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. This is the counsel of our Lord to us. If Christ is your Lord, if He is the risen Savior, the coming King, the only thing to do is to seek His kingdom, not yours, and to seek His righteousness, not follow your will at any cost. What does He mean by the kingdom of God? It could be a whole series of sermons, but to limit this to the millennial kingdom, seek the millennial kingdom, the kingdom in which Christ will return and establish, I think is too narrow of an interpretation, though it certainly includes that, and heavily includes that. Jesus teaches us to pray that His kingdom would come, and so our seeking includes the prospect of that millennial reign. Others take this as a reference to the universal reign of God, which had no beginning and will have no end. This seems to me to be too broad of an interpretation, though again, it's not dismissing the idea. But Jesus is reigning in the kingdom He inaugurated by His death and resurrection. Now I admit, that's looking further down the road as to what will happen. But I think He's pointing us that way. To seek His kingdom is to seek to display His glory in this world as the risen Savior, with a view to His return and reign on earth as He now reigns in heaven that there would be a focus on the rule of Jesus Christ in all things. Seek His kingdom. So you're seeking it with a prospect of the future, but you're also seeking it in its presence among us now. To seek His kingdom is to labor in the interest of the message of His death and resurrection, His reign and His pending return as King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm so overwhelmed by this reality that it changes everything. Christ has defeated sin. He has given forgiveness to His people. He reigns in victory over death. He will come to establish His kingdom on earth. 
where His will will be done here as it's been in heaven. That reality changes everything. It radically transforms the way that I view material wealth specifically. And His righteousness, what is that? We're to seek His kingdom. We're to seek His righteousness. This is largely synonymous idea, I think, with the kingdom of God. Not an entirely distinct concept. And yet, if we would seek it out, if we would seek to determine the word, seeking the righteousness of God means to submit to all that God says is right and to reject all that God's word reveals is evil. It is his righteousness that has been revealed as epitomized in the person of Jesus Christ himself. To seek that righteousness in this world and in our lives is his call. To yield to the reign of Christ as sovereign Lord over my will so that my will conforms to God's will for me as revealed in his word. That's my orientation. And so, in a sense, if I'm oriented that way to seek His kingdom and His righteousness, I don't have time to worry. It's below me. It's way below Him. He's seeking out a people that will magnify His name and carry His message of salvation Having those people worry and fret over where they're going to live and what they're going to wear and what they're going to eat and how things are going to work out in their life is below the whole project. It's insanity. In fact, as we seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Jesus says, all these things will be added to you. He gives you His Word. If we seek God's kingdom as our first priority, God will meet our material needs. This is no promise of luxurious riches. It is not a promise that no Christian could possibly ever starve to death under persecution should God permit them to so suffer for His cause. We read between the lines the right ideas here. What it is to say is that you don't need to worry. The controls of the universe are in my hands Seek my kingdom and my glory. You'll be seeking exactly what I'm seeking and there is no way on earth you're going to be left behind. I have this, says the Lord. I've got this. It's a promise that pursuing God's glory will never be the cause of our destitution. Never. How foolish it seems when we put it under light. Trust God and I'm going to be in trouble. Worry, and things will work out better. It's ridiculous. Jesus is helping us see, listen, there are times we act in a ridiculous way. Saying, look at this. Look at it under the microscope. It makes utterly no sense. Worry, fixing anything, or trust me. The clinching principle then is given in verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. All right, worriers, here we go. As we worry, we never, ever know what's actually going to happen. Right? We would never claim omniscience. 
as we worry, we have no idea what tomorrow holds. You have no idea that what you worry will happen. Worry, then again, is a waste of time and energy. God will supply the grace for you to face each day as it comes. You're taking on worries about tomorrow. God has not supplied grace to handle that day. And you don't know if he will because you don't know if that day will come or if the thing that you see as the pending disaster never even materializes. Don't worry. It's a waste of energy. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Perhaps Jesus chuckled when he said that in his voice. I mean, every day's got enough of its issues. You don't need to worry about tomorrow too. There's all kinds of trouble. Trust God's grace today. It's a promise. A promise that He has us covered. Sufficient is His grace for today. So three times through this passage, let's reflect for a bit longer, but three times through this passage, Jesus prohibits anxiety in seeking material goods. Do not be anxious about your life. Don't orient it that way. As we apply his instructions, we must note that there is, of course, a proper sort of worry. And for the six of you here that need to be so corrected, think about this. It's important. There's a kind of worry that rightly presses us to serve God faithfully. Paul spoke about this kind of worry to the Corinthian church. I don't think he was admitting his sin here. He said, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, you could read that and say Paul is confessing his sin there. I don't think he is. I'm saying that he, I think he's just saying this is the reality. There's the anxiety of caring for these churches that I oversee. It's a real anxiety. It's a pressure. People who convert Jesus' prohibition against anxiety into laziness, a lack of initiative, fatalistic disinterest in tackling the challenges and responsibilities of life are simply blaming Jesus for their own sin. We cannot read what he's saying here to say, I'm not going to worry about anything in any way, shape, or form. I'm just going to let life happen to me. He would rebuke you under different circumstances. A lazy, unimaginative, unproductive, apathetic approach to life is a failure to seek God's kingdom and righteousness. It is a misunderstanding of providence. Are we to imagine that Jesus is without anxiety when He weeps over Jerusalem knowing that they will reject Him as Messiah. Are we to imagine Jesus in the garden, sweating as it were great drops of blood, pleading with the Father to remove this cup from Him, to remove what is going to happen in the future as He faces the cross? Are we to imagine there no anxiety? There is a proper sort of anxiety, of worry in the right sense. 
But the anxiety that is improper is fueled by irrational fear. It is fueled by falsehood. It is fueled by self-dependent frustration. Those who fear the future and fret about grasping all of the life that they can are buying the lie that God is neither sovereign nor good. There's a falsehood that's running the show. They are frustrated because they are depending on themselves rather than on God. They are frustrated with the circumstances of life that are making it difficult because they want to be the sovereign Lord of their circumstances. Oh, you of little faith, Jesus says, don't be anxious. If God is the author of life, if He has saved you by Jesus' death to pay the penalty of your sin, if He has granted you the benefits of His resurrection from the dead, can you not trust Him to love you and care for you in everything else? Again, how irrational we put our eternal soul in the hands of Jesus and then doubt that He can take care of our daily lives. how we need to be rebuked for that kind of worry. Let's not blame Jesus for our laziness in this, but let's take also to heart the worries that dishonor Him. Now let's also note that as Jesus meets our needs, He does not follow our script Demand that of Him and you will face frustration upon frustration. But you can trust His love and His wisdom every single second of every single day for the rest of forever. He will not fail you if you're His child. He will not fail you. If Jesus saved you from God's wrath and in eternity in hell, it is insane to worry about anything else. And if you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, if you have not trusted in His death and resurrection for your salvation and deliverance from judgment due to your sin, it's insane not to worry. Worry should drive you today to the feet of Jesus asking for forgiveness and embracing Him as Lord and Savior. Jesus calls us in this passage to calibrate our lives. It seems to me the three concepts, and I read these in and around and through all of the Bible, but I think there's three basic concepts that are, are, are playing themselves out here within this text. The first is this. God is the ever-present, all-knowing, all-wise, infinitely powerful, and sovereign ruler of the universe. Without that reality, this passage means nothing. But He is ruling in providence as King of kings and Lord of lords with all power. Number two, Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Master. The authority and model of my life to whom I gladly submit as slave and steward. He's the Master of my soul. 
And thirdly, the triune God can be trusted to protect and direct, provide and guide me every step of life's journey until I am delivered into the eternal presence of the Lord. All-powerful, master, deliverance. Armed with these convictions, to then anxiously seek the material goods of this world is a small, ignorant, and foolish way to live. And we come into this assembly today, we come in facing this fallen world and these trials and challenges that every one of us are dealing with. And may we together then as the body of Christ build each other up in the faith not to be dismissive of the challenges that we're facing, but to be encouraging and uplifting reminding one another of the promises of God, where we hear that fear, where we hear that false doctrine coming out of one another's mouths, where we see the frustration of the anxieties of life, may we come back to the promises of Christ and may we encourage one another. He's got this covered. Do not... Be anxious. Armed with these convictions, we should courageously seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness and a life of hope and joy and satisfaction will follow in Christ. It may be one with deep grief, sorrow, and trial, but it will be one that is satisfying for eternity. Do not be anxious. Trust Christ. Lord, we need this rebuke. We need this encouragement, this confidence from within a world that doesn't offer such assurance. It is grasping and clawing at our heart drawing us to trust in ourselves, drawing us away from our trust in You. It teaches and coaches us to be anxious about everything, to be filled with anxious ambition to get our way, to find our pleasure, to seek glory and honor. Thank You, Father, for this word of instruction through our Savior. We need it. We pray that we'd apply it, that we'd grow to trust You in all things. And Lord, we pray in behalf of those who should be worried about their soul. We plead in their behalf. Draw them to Jesus Christ as Savior today. May they know that one day they will bend the knee before Him in eternity may they now be preparing to make sure that that moment is a day of joy and not of judgment. May they rightly fear. May we all fear You. Lord, may we put our trust and our confidence in Your provision for everything. We ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen.